Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Chapter 30. The Pensive. The door of the office opened. Hello, Potter, said Moody. Come in, then. Harry walked inside. He had been inside Dumbledore's office once before. It was a very beautiful, circular room, lined with pictures of previous headmasters and headmistresses of Hogwarts, all of whom were fast asleep, their chests rising and falling gently. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hi, everyone. We just have a few announcements before we get into our story and discussion about comfort and the pensive. Remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts for ad-free episodes. And while you're there, rate and review us. The ratings really help people find us, and we love to read your reviews. And so leave us one and give us joy. And for our Patreon subscribers, today in our Every Flavor Bean perk, we are going to be discussing the memories that Vanessa and I would like to revisit if we had access to a pensive. So if you'd like to hear that discussion and like to hear all our Every Flavor Bean discussions, go to patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. Vanessa, this week you're going to tell us a story about comfort. Sure I am. I'm settling into my soft chair. Oh, good. And I'm ready to hear your story. So, Matt, as you know, I have two brothers, David and Jonathan. I'm very close to them. I love them very much. And I am very comfortable around them. In fact, I am so radically comfortable around them that I behave differently around them than I behave around everyone else in my life, right? Like, I'm a deeply disgusting person around my brothers. If I burp in the same room as my brothers, I will hold it and run across a room to run up to them to blow it in their faces. This is not something that I do in the rest of my life. But there is some deep, authentic, comfortable part of myself that does that when I am in a room with my brothers. And if you would ask me if in general, when I'm living my life 3,000 miles away from my brothers, if I am a violent person, I would really tell you not. Like, I don't yell. I do not slam things. I'm not violent in any way. But something happened in October of this year. I had to go home to L.A. My father was in the hospital. And so I was around my brothers a lot. And we were talking to a nurse. And my younger brother interrupted the nurse. Not in a, like, mean way. In a, like, I have a follow-up question way. 
And without thinking about it, I smacked my brother. Just with like the back of my hand, I smacked him in the chest. And I was like, let her finish. And this woman looked at me horrified. Like she looked at me like I was a 40-year-old woman who just smacked a 35-year-old man and yelled at him. That it was, she looked at me appropriately, but horrified. How dare she? I know. And when she left the room, I looked at him and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I hit you, let alone that hard. I'm so sorry. And he was like, you do that to me all the time. I was like, I do? And he was like, yeah. And it was only in seeing the response of the nurse that I was like, oh, is this a, is this a weird thing that I do? And Matt, part of me is like, it's nice that I'm comfortable around my brothers. But I will say the rubber really hit the road recently in this dynamic where that same brother, Jonathan, recently got engaged to a wonderful girl and we're very excited. And they had a little engagement brunch. And so I I met Jonathan's new in-laws, soon to be in-laws. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw my brother David. I saw like a five foot nine, dark haired, handsome man. And so I went to smack him. And luckily, at the last second, I noticed that it was not my brother, David, but it was my brother's future brother-in-law, a stranger to me. And so I did not hit him. And like, that's the thing about comfort to me is that it's situational and that too much of it sometimes can be bad. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah. I almost smacked a stranger. I know. I know. And did smack your brother in front of a stranger. I did. I did. That's right. That's right. This is really interesting because in general, I think I tend to think about comfort in comparison to discomfort. Like what is comfort? Uh-huh. It's the opposite of discomfort. So anything that takes away discomfort, that's comfort. The story you're telling actually sounds more like kind of freedom to be more fully yourself, right? That's yes. what comfort is. And I think that's a great definition of comfort. In fact, etymologically speaking, insert theme song here. Etymology corner with Matt. The word comfort actually means to give strength. Yes. When I was looking at the etymology, like the the COM part of comfort, it, it can mean like with. And so I was like, oh, sweet. That's because you're with someone. When you're with people, you give them strength. Nope. In this case, COM just is an intensifier. It's like to give more strength. And the fort comes from like forte. Like when you are with your brothers, you have the strength to strike them in violence. <laughs> that is that is what comfort means. <laughs> acting out in violence. I think that I have the strength to let my anger out or the freedom to let my anger yeah out in frustration. Whereas in most of my life, I'm polite, even when I'm irritated, right? Because you're not afraid of how your brothers will judge you. Like, you know, the relation with them is so secure that like, they'll know where it's coming from and what it means. And they're not gonna. So that that is that actually is an example of being comfortable because you are actually able to express this stuff. Matt, Vanessa, will you please remind the people what happens in this chapter? It will make me uncomfortable to do so. But comfort's not always the prize. Nope. There's a deeper purpose here, and I'm willing to be uncomfortable to inform our listeners of about 20% of what happened in this chapter. <laughs> when you win the Nobel Peace Prize, none of us will be surprised. 
We'll be like, yeah. <laughs> Based solely on my 30-second recap work. Your willingness yeah. to do the greater good. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. That's why I do it. I know. Okay. That's why I make the sacrifice. <laughs> to one day get the Nobel Peace Prize. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Harry is called into the office and the, the, the Dumbledore and Fudge and Moody are there and they, they're like, hey, what, we have to leave. Why do you hang out with all these dangerous magical objects by yourself? And so he does. And then he sees the stone bowl and he gets sucked into the stone bowl. And first it's Karkaroff and Karkaroff is being kind of a scoundrel. And he says, Snape. And Dumbledore says, not Snape. And then it's Bagman and Bagman's kind of a dip. And then it's uh, the, the very terrible people and also Barty Crouch Jr. And it's a very sad scene. And then he's pulled out and he says, and then Dumbledore is there and Dumbledore says, there's lots of stuff that you don't understand. And, and all also, uh, darn it, I ran out of time. I felt like there was an important part of the conversation with Dumbledore I wanted to get to, and I just failed to get to it. Maybe you can pick that well, up. Well, I'll do that first. Yeah, you did great. I'll count you in. Thank you. Three, two, one, go. So I would argue it's like five scenes. It's Harry thinking about going to the pensive, three scenes in the pensive, heartbreaking where Barty Crouch Jr. is like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And Barty Crouch Sr. is like, whatever, lock him up. Then there's a conversation between Harry and Dumbledore. And Harry is like, I had this dream, my scar heart. And Dumbledore is like, yeah, Frank Bryce is missing. I think Dum- I think that Voldemort is probably rising to power again. And then also Harry, Neville Longbottom's parents were tortured and they are out of their minds and don't tell anyone. That's great. The, I mean, the whole thing I wanted to get to was the the, the Neville thing, and I Neville. But I'm very grateful that you got there. Teamwork. So, Matt, you know, the text tells us that Harry just feels better being in Dumbledore's office. Dumbledore isn't even in the room, as you pointed out in your 30 second recap, right? Like everybody's like, "Hi, Harry, welcome. Bye, Harry, hang out here." With a sword and a bird the size of a swan, which was horrifying for me to learn. Swans are huge. I cannot believe fox the size of a swan. (laughs) That is too big for a bird inside the house. And it's interesting to me that Harry just feels better being in this office. And then what we also see in this office is a way that Dumbledore sort of self-soothes and self-comforts, right? We find out that the pensive is a place where Dumbledore sort of like journals, right? Like writes down his thoughts. And so Dumbledore's office, I think, is like shown to us as a place with a weapon and a scary bird (laughs) and a bunch of, you know, headmasters staring at you, but also is this place where a lot of comfort is being offered. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, for our listeners, Harry has had a dream in divination and he leaves and says he's going to go to the hospital wing because he has a splitting headache. But instead, he goes to Dumbledore's office. And at the beginning of this chapter, we learn why. It says in the beginning of the chapter that Harry knows that he's going to be telling Dumbledore about the dream. And he wants to unload. He wants to, like, this dream has caused him this, it's unsettled him, it's caused him discomfort. If you think about my definition of comfort as the opposite of discomfort, right? Unloading this thing is going to be a relief. It's going to feel release, right? But the other thing I was thinking about when I read that part of the scene was that, you know, this is the second dream and maybe even recalls the first dream he had, the dream that opens this book, the dream where he sees Frank Bryce being murdered, right? Like, Harry has been carrying this dream, this haunting dream and this pain in the scar by this point in the novel for basically almost 600 pages, right? For almost a full academic year. And he's, he's told nobody what's going on and he's finally going to unload some of that 
And it just made me think about how like a lot of how we find comfort, how I find comfort in the world is often unloading stuff. Stuff that I'm carrying that I don't feel I can tell someone. When you finally do tell someone those things, it can really be a relief and, and offer some comfort. Importantly, like the thing doesn't go away. The fact of the dream is still there, right? And like, I think this is a relationship between like comfort and maybe a solution or comfort and resolution, right? Sometimes you can have comfort without finding resolution. And this is what's happening here. Harry maybe hopes that Dumbledore will give him some answers, but whether or not Dumbledore gives him firm answers, and let's be honest, Dumbledore has a history of giving kind of evasive answers. (laughs) He knows that when he tells this to Dumbledore, like it's no longer going to be his alone to carry. And that's part of the comfort he's seeking. It's part of the reason why Dumbledore's office feels like a greater comfort and salve to him than the hospital wing for his splitting headache. Yeah. I'm wondering what you think about, though. I'm so skeptical of authority that I'm just thinking that I used to believe that just getting to the place to report the information would make it someone else's problem and would make me safe, right? I just have to get to the doctor and I'll tell them I am in pain and they'll be like, great, I'm on it. I just have to get to the police department and tell them I'm scared and they are going to do a fair and just investigation and get to the bottom of it, right? Like I used to just have this like faith that all I had to do was tell someone and things would get a little bit better. And yeah, I think that this is something that Harry is going to learn and unlearn and learn and unlearn in the novels, right? Like, he couldn't tell the Dursleys anything anytime he was in trouble. And it's beautiful that he's now going and telling Dumbledore. But the chapter ends with Dumbledore saying, good luck on the third task. Like, Dumbledore does not make this less dangerous for Harry. And I agree that Harry finds it comforting to just unload. And I am... Not above that. I get teased for having an emotional support journal. I journal all day, every day. And whenever I'm stressed, I write it down and it makes me feel better, right? Like, and nothing is getting solved by me doing that. But like, it just helps. Like, it just calms me down. But it doesn't, yeah. I I think maybe what I'm talking about is the limits of comfort. The Dumbledore comforts Harry, but he still lets Harry walk into a near-death experience and yep. Cedric's death. I think that's the distinction, right? I think that comfort is not the same thing as a solution or resolution. Right. Although solutions and resolutions can be comforting, right? They're separable. <laughs> totally. And I think these roles are very complicated, right? I think that like, when you go into a police department and tell a police officer about something, their role is to respond, depending on what you've told them, right? Right. I think for a teacher, it, it gets more complicated. There's some things teachers have the power to do But part of a teacher's job is sometimes to listen and to just sit with the struggles that a student is having. Or I think about my role as a pastor, right? Often we can't fix the thing that the person comes to us for. All we have to offer is the listening. And I think it's incumbent upon people in those sorts of professions to be very clear about the limits of their power and the comfort that they are able to offer. And you're absolutely right. I think the call out at the end of the chapter, it's it's troubling having read this book already. To come to the end of this chapter and have, after this conversation, have Dumbledore say, good luck with the third task. Now, Dumbledore hasn't read this book, so he doesn't know what's going to happen to the third task, but he knows it's dangerous. And as we've been talking through the whole book, there have been fairly simple to arrive at solutions to the problem of Harry's participation 
that they and the administration of Hogwarts have not arrived at yet. And so because we know what's going to happen, because we know it's going to lead to a death, that kind of good luck with the third task seems ignorant to the point of negligent almost. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Also, I just wanted to call special attention to like the idea of journaling, right? The idea of the pensive as a magical form of journaling, right? Like when you have too much in your head, one of the things that you do is you write it down and it kind of comes out in the order that it comes out. And sometimes, especially if you keep a journal, like the, the thoughts are not discrete. You don't have like a really well-flowing narrative. You have everything come out and then you start to see the lines through which you might pull these things together and make sense of them. What Dumbledore describes as the function of the, of the pensive sounds a lot like writing, <laughs> sounds a lot like sitting down in front of a piece of paper or in front of a keyboard when there's too much in your head and you have to kind of sort through it and you're not sure where to start. Yeah, Matt. I mean, just something I'm thinking about, though, is like, when is me self-comforting through journaling <laughs> counterproductive, right? Like, when is comfort not the thing that I need, but like my anxiety is pointing to something and I should take action, not just self-soothe? And that's Dumbledore's missed opportunity, right? Like he's offering comfort when what is required is actually action. And I understand, like, I understand that instinct, right? I think that that's, that is why we journal. That is why we call our friends. That is why we try to comfort ourselves. I just wonder if sometimes we go for comfort too quickly. Let me rephrase. I think I often go to comfort too quickly. I'm like, this is stressful. I'm going to nap rather than this is stressful. Let me try to figure out how to address the situation. And Dumbledore's up in his office, like journaling in this magical way, putting his memories into a pensive. And I'm like, shouldn't you be ending the four wizard tournament? I'm not sure that they are always... That comfort and action are always at odds with each other, right? Like, I think that especially when you're trying to take action, like, you need to make sure you can tolerate the actions you're taking or, right? I, I think the question of the limits of comfort is an important one. And I think some of the other examples we're going to look at in this chapter around comfort are going to help us think through what the limits of comfort are. But, you know, like... You know, it's a... I guess it's a judgment call. Like, when are you napping and not acting? Like, like you have to sleep. Right? Like, if you are not sleeping ever because there's <laughs> sure. always a reason to act, that's not enough, right? And so that is something that you just kind of have to figure out for yourself. And Dumbledore, I think that he actually is really trying to figure out what's going on. I think that he's thinking about his his diving into the pensive as trying to figure out what actions he ought to take. I think he really doesn't know quite what's happening. And so he feels like, it's, if we're thinking about the pensive as a journal, he's not doing it just to unload some feelings so he can, you know watch Netflix tonight with a clear conscience. I think he's <laughs> journaling so he can figure out what the right thing to do is. You know, it's not necessarily a, an either or, but I, I think there are sometimes, as you point out, though, like there is a point at which you cross this threshold where like you determine that because I'm not willing to be uncomfortable or make myself uncomfortable for the sake of a greater good, and I want to avoid the simple economies of sacrifice, as you so often invite us to do, Vanessa, like but I think there is a point at which you cross a threshold where you're like, oh, actually, my comfort means I don't have to pay attention to the way the things are going. Right. And as long as I'm comfortable here, then I can ignore everything that's going on out right. there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just scared of that all the time, right? That I am so comfortable in my little bubble that I'm not 
doing enough. And there are, right, like there are all sorts of studies about this. I love Peter Singer on this, right? If you are watching a child drown right in front of you in a pond that you could easily get into, even if you are wearing $1,000 shoes, you would ruin your $1,000 shoes to go rescue that child. But as soon as the child is in another country, you're like $1,000, right? And I, I think that we see this line actually with Neville. We find out in this chapter that Neville's parents were tortured to the point of them having such severe PTSD that they are not themselves and they don't even recognize Neville. They don't know who Neville is. And yet we find out that over school vacations, Neville goes with his grandmother to visit his parents, even though his parents, again, don't recognize him. They do not know who he is. And Neville is engaging with two people who he doesn't really know. They were tortured and had this traumatic brain injury when Neville was really young. And so it's not like Neville has the experience of interacting with his parents. You cannot imagine that this is a comfortable thing, right? Like this sounds like a very painful thing for Neville to do. And it's not like it is offering comfort to Neville's parents, right? Like there's no comfort in this. And yet Neville does it every, every, like every vacation. He just goes back and we're going to see it in the next book and how beautiful Neville is on these visits. And I think it's a great example for us to think of because I love that we as a society are now better at saying, oh, this situation makes me uncomfortable. That is pointing to the possibility that something bad is happening here. And can we pause and think about whether or not there's something bad happening here? But this moment with Neville shows the sort of, not inverse of that, but like the edge of that, that there are things that make us uncomfortable that we do because it's our parents and we love them, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I think it's a really beautiful example. I'm glad you called us to it. I I think you're right. We don't actually know the dynamics of what's going on with Neville and his grandmother yet at this chapter. But I I think you're right to point out that like, this is obviously not comforting to, to Neville to see his parents in the state. Because of the state that they're in, they are not comforted by his visit. I mean, not in any way we can measure or we, that we can be confident in, at least, right? I'm not sure it gives a lot of comfort to Neville's grandmother, right? No one's doing this because it feels good. But they they do it because it's important and it means a lot, right? Like, it, it means something to, to Neville, even though it's hard. It shapes who he is and it's not something he wants to, to give up. You know, one of the examples you gave earlier was, you know, when you go to the doctor and you say that you have pain you expect it or if you have something going on with you you expect them to respond and as you know we we have a lot of evidence that those disclosures from people especially if they are people already marginalized are not paid attention to but i also think that like sometimes medical professionals can also sort of be comforting in the clarity of the limits of their power you know as you know my mom died of cancer last year and like the most comforting doctor that my parents had was the one who was very, very straightforward about what she could do and what she couldn't do, right? And that clarity, like the discomfort of hearing the truth was balanced against the comfort of having someone basically talk straight to them, right? I think this kind of the line between where something's comfortable and where something's uncomfortable is often very blurry. And it's a judgment call that we make. And sometimes you wander towards one form of discomfort, like hearing the truth about your diagnosis. But that opens up another kind of comfort, which is like, oh, now I know the truth and we know what we're dealing with. And right. And so like these are always kind of judgment calls and ones that we make in our own interpersonal relationships when we talk to each other, like how direct to be, how 
how much to care for the other person, where they need to be cared for. I think the thing about comfort when it gets dangerous is when it starts to point only to our own sense of kind of ease or self-soothing, when we should always also be thinking about like, okay, how is this affecting people, right? Mm-hmm. Other people and how might how might I have responsibilities beyond my own self-care, which also is a responsibility, right? Matt, I... I think you are brilliant all the time. I think that this might be like the most brilliant thing you've ever said. <laughs> I'm just thinking about, I, I'm thinking about a moment with Amy, my now 10-year-old stepdaughter, who when she was four or five, we were at a friend's house and this like man who we didn't know and wasn't wearing a shirt asked her for a hug goodbye. And she looked at him and went, no, thank you. And I was like, Yes, like good for you. (laughs) That would have made you uncomfortable and you do not have to do that. Right, right. And then I sometimes have an instinct because if a family member or a close friend goes to hug her goodbye, she's not a big hugger. Mm -hmm. So it makes her uncomfortable to hug them goodbye, but she wants to hug them goodbye. And what would make her more uncomfortable is hurting their feelings. And I'm always like, you don't have to hug if you don't want to hug. But she knows that. And she's choosing this like bigger comfort of like showing a person she loves them in a way that she knows they can understand rather than her own comfort. And I think, I don't think that that is like a purely good thing. I think that there are probably times where as like a small girl, she's sacrificing her comfort for others' comforts too much. And Like, I want to keep pushing her on, like, having as strong of boundaries as she showed as this four-year-old who didn't want to hug this strange man. But, yeah, like, sometimes comfort in the moment, right, like, is, is too much discomfort later or too much discomfort for somebody else. Yeah. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. 
It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. You know, another example from the chapter was this, I think, of managing one's own comfort and discomfort against the comfort or discomfort of others is the scene of Barty Crouch Jr.'s trial or sentencing or whatever it is that we see inside the pensive with Harry and eventually with Dumbledore, who shows up as well. I mean, one of the things that's so striking about that scene is Barty Crouch Sr. is absolutely allergic to any acts of comfort to anyone. Right. You can see he is so enraged over the betrayal or so committed to like judgment or feels it his role in order to not give the impression of any kind of nepotism. Like he must be firm and he must be be absolutely kind of ruthless. But like his wife is next to him, like breaking down. Why are they sitting next to each other? It's so it's such a cruel scene. But his wife is next to him quite understandably emotionally wrought and struggling. And he is just, I mean, he seems to have no patience with that. He offers her no comfort whatsoever. And Barty Crouch Jr., who everyone can, who's read this book can acknowledge is not a good person and has done some evil things. Barty Crouch Sr. shows no sign of any kind of empathy or comfort towards towards his son either. It reminds me of like the, or makes me think more about this etymology of comfort as giving strength to like, on the one hand, I can see how you would not want to give strength to someone who, who exploits strength and has used violence and in these heinous ways like Barty Crouch Jr. has. But it also makes me think about just, you know, how terrible the Azkaban situation is and just like the absolute unwillingness to offer any kind of consolation to folks who are going to Azkaban as if doing so would be to condone their actions. I don't know. I want to separate that stuff out. I think that you can judge people and even exact punishment on people while also like trying to retain some sense of their personhood, <laughs> right? And I don't know where the line is, and it's very messy. And in this situation, just the fact that it's familial and it's all within one family just makes that unwillingness to offer any consolation really dramatic and arresting. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. The scene is heartbreaking. And I know we're going to find out later that it turns out that Barty Crouch Jr. was a bad guy all along. But this scene where he's yelling, no father, right? Like, I'm innocent. The idea of being deaf to that is really, it's just brutal. (laughs) And yeah, not turning to your wife and hugging her. Like, and, and, you know, you understand why Barty Crouch Sr. is incapable of offering comfort if he believes that his son is guilty and if he believes that it's actually more important than ever because he's in charge and it's his son to do this, then opening himself up to a moment of emotion would destroy him. Now, I think that the move to make would be to recuse himself and be like, do you know what? I shouldn't I shouldn't be in charge of this one. I think um, my good friend Albus Dumbledore should probably step in here. Yeah. And so I, I don't know what that's about. I have guesses, but I would really be just doing conjecture. 
But I understand the emotional logic of his response. I just think that he, it's bad strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think where the line from comforting to condoning is may also be blurry, right? And we don't want him, we don't want Barty Crouch Sr. condoning any of the things that these folks did who are being sentenced in this moment. But like when Barty Crouch Jr. says like, I'm your son or whatever, and he's like, I have no son, right? Like another way to do it is just be like, yes, I'm sorry, son, but this is how it's going, right? This is what's happening. Like, I, like those kinds of things are, I don't know if they're comforting or not, but they're just, there's something that's so rigid and so ruthless in this. I, I like your reading. I hadn't thought of this, that maybe what Barty Crouch Sr. is doing is stealing himself because he knows if he shows any emotion, he's just going to lose it like Mrs. Crouch is doing and he doesn't want that for himself. But yeah, it's a difficult scene. Yeah, I can't imagine being deaf to cries like that. Yeah. So Matt, it is now time for Sacred Imagination. Based on the practice of St. Ignatius of Loyola, we are going to imagine ourselves into a scene of the Harry Potter books. And I'm going to ask you to try to be present whatever way you can if that requires closing your eyes. Listeners who are driving, absolutely do not close your eyes. But do what you can to make yourself present in this moment. Maybe take a deep breath. And... I'm going to ask you to really try to experience through your senses what is going on in the scene. And so for context, I am going to read part of the scene where Karkarov is being questioned 10 years ago or so after the fall of Voldemort at the Ministry of Magic. And Karkarov has just sat down as I'm going to start reading. Unlike Dumbledore, Karkarov looked much younger. His hair and goatee were black. He was not dressed in sleek furs, but in thin and ragged robes. He was shaking. Even as Harry watched, the chains on the arms of the chair glowed suddenly gold and snaked their way up Kokorov's arms, binding him there. Igor Kokorov said a curt voice to Harry's left. Harry looked around and saw Mr. Crouch standing up in the middle of the bench beside him. Crouch's hair was dark. His face was much less lined. He looked fit and alert. You have been brought from Azkaban to present evidence to the Ministry of Magic. You have given us to understand that you have important information for us. Karkarov straightened himself as best he could, tightly bound to the chair. I have, sir, he said. And although his voice was very scared, Harry could still hear the familiar unctuous note in it. I wish to be of use to the Ministry. I wish to help. I, I know the Ministry is trying to... To round up the last of the Dark Lord's supporters, I am eager to assist in any way I can. There was a murmur around the benches. Some of the wizards and witches were surveying Karkarov with interest, others with pronounced mistrust. Then Harry heard quite distinctly from Dumbledore's other side a familiar growling voice say, Filth. Harry leaned forward so that he could see past Dumbledore. Mad-Eye Moody was sitting there, except that there was a very noticeable difference in his appearance. He did not have his magical eye, but two normal ones. Both were looking down upon Karkarov, and both were narrowed with intense dislike. Crouch is going to let him out, Moody breathed quietly into Dumbledore's ear. He's done a deal with him. Took me six months to track him down. 
And Crouch is going to let him go if he's got enough names. Let's hear his information, I say, and throw him straight back to the Dementors. Dumbledore made a small noise of dissent through his long, crooked nose. So, Matt, who were you in this scene? I think I found myself settling into, like, as a random wizard within the gallery or within this assembly. And I noticed some of, the, like, the sensory things that you invited us to think about. I, you know, like the damp and the cold of this, what felt like a dungeon. It is a dungeon, right? What feels like a dungeon. And yeah. the kind of smell, the kind of earthy, dank smell I noticed. And sort of like the, the echoey quality that I imagine dungeons have. Like, I could hear that. I could hear the reverberations of sound when people were talking. But what I kind of felt affectively was just how... I felt kind of like a prop in this confrontation between Karkarov and Barty Crouch Sr. Like that I was there to shore up the kind of the institutional power of this body, but that Crouch was the one making the decisions, right? And that Crouch was the one deciding what this will mean. And that my role there was to signify the institutional power of this man, Barty Crouch Sr., who's deciding the fate of Karkarov and that. And so that I felt this very strong sense of inhabiting that role on the bench or in the gallery. I felt this strong sense of having seated my voice to Barty Crouch, who was speaking for me. Yeah. And like the moments of relief of it and the moments of frustration, right? Where you're like, ah, oh, you're doing me proud or like moody. Oh, you're going to let him go, right? Like, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So I was Karkarov and I'm just terrified, right? Like, yeah. I don't have all the information. I don't want to spend the rest of my life in Azkaban. I am kind of morally empty and repugnant because I'm just flipping to the side of the winner. But like, I am now scared. And I, I like know that I'm weak. <laughs> and I don't know. I think the thing that really got to me was this feeling of like, the chain snaking up his arm. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm claustrophobic, but I don't like confined spaces. Yeah. I don't like flying, not because like I get motion sick or because I am scared. I hate being locked into a small space for many hours, right? Like that trappedness. And he's physically trapped and psychologically trapped. Like he has to try to guess at what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And how much they're going to want to hear. And and so that double trappedness, I think, is what I yeah. really felt. And I've obviously never felt it to that extent. But I feel like, you know, we've all felt that like in a job interview where you're like, ah, I don't know what you want to hear and I want to be honest, but also I need to make rent. And so, yeah, I just felt that like suffocating, right? And you're in a dungeon and there are no windows and everyone is staring at me. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that because I, I think I started settling into Karkarov until the chains were snaking up around his arms. Yeah. And then I was just like, nope, let's go sit in the gallery. <laughs> I think I'd rather, honestly, like I think I was just like, oh, I don't want to yeah. descend deep into that experience right now. And also just like the imagery of snakes. You know, I think snakes are wonderful and marvelous creatures. Uh, but we know that within this series of books, they often are used to represent the Death Eaters and the evil wizards. And which is so there is something about just the idea that the dementors bring them in and the the chains snake up their arms like this kind of overlap of when institutional power with good intentions maybe or which is meant to be for the good when it starts to assume the tactics and the practices and habits of the bad things against which it's struggling you see that in the imagery here 
yeah. right? with the way that Karkarov and others yeah. are, are treated in this space and with the Dementors and Azkaban and all that stuff. Absolutely. Well, Matt, thank you so much for that really fun sacred imagination. When I fly, I'm going to fly on Sunday to lead one of our pilgrimages. I'll think about Karkarov as I buckle myself in. <laughs> That's terrifying. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks for bringing this passage to us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's voicemail is from Danny. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. This is Danny calling in. I wanted to share that uh, listening to your last episode on the egg and the eye through the theme of contemplation. While you were doing Pardes, I had a sode occur to me, which was pretty cool. You were talking about the sentence of Harry listening to the eerie voices coming out of the egg as he's learning about the second task. And it occurred to me that Harry has this pattern of being really open to metaphysical communications or voices from unknown sources. He trusts in Riddle's diary. He accepts the words of the merfolk here a little more literally than anybody else does in the second task. And in his final walk through the forest, he opens up a golden object, the golden snitch, just like this egg, and he finds the resurrection stone and he is accompanied on that final walk to his own death by voices from beyond the grave. And Harry's really open and really trusting in this. And it occurs to me that Harry has good reason to be mistrusting of the adults in his life and just the world in general after all of his suffering and that there's something very lovely and brave about his willingness to be open to messages it it brings him grief like in book five when he believes the lies that Voldemort puts into his head but it also brings him comfort and gives him strength when he is accompanied by his parents and Lupin and Sirius in those final moments as he walks towards Voldemort at the end of book seven. So that's the sode that occurred to me. I just thought it was really interesting that Harry has this almost sort of spiritual openness to communications from mysterious sources. And I thought I'd share. So blessings to Harry for that bravery and blessings to all of you for your hard work on this podcast. Thank you, Danny, for that 
Great sewed. You know how I feel about sods, and this is a, this is a really <laughs> excellent one. And it's a double sewed, I think, because it's not just this kind of access that Harry has to voices. What I thought about as you're listing examples was, you know, right in the beginning of the first book, one of the first signals that Harry is different from the other children around him is he hears the snake speaking to him through the glass, right? Like, and we know he's a parcel tongue, but he's always been open to hearing voices. And so I think your second sode, which you included, but I want to just draw out, is just like, it's also because the voices around him that raised him are not ones he can trust, right? The Dursleys are not voices that he finds reliable or caring or significant, apart from, you know, his own kind of self-preservation. And so this openness is a almost a survival mechanism for him. And you're right that that survival mechanism sometimes leads him wrong, like it will in book five. But it also is the way that he finds comfort and finds counsel outside of the voices of those who are supposed to give him counsel and and responsible for giving him counsel, but so often fail to. So thanks, Danny. This is a great reading, and I'm so glad you shared it with us. Also, hi, Danny. Matt Danny is one of our patrons who comes every month to our small group Lectio on Zoom. And she is always sharing exactly this kind of wisdom. Now is the time in the episode when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Jack, 19, a unique son, brother, uncle, and friend. Joseph, 16, a son, brother, uncle, friend, and rainbow. Luke Malinick, 17, a big-hearted kid who was doing everything right. Joanna Chantal, 72, stage manager extraordinaire and Diet Coke's number one fan. Wilda Heidel, 93, who loved birds and music. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? I am blessing Mrs. Crouch. I just can't even wrap my head around how that would feel to sit there and watch my husband, like, turn in our kid. I just can't even imagine it. And I know that parents have to sit and watch their children get arrested and taken away. And, like, this is a slightly exaggerated moment because it is her son's father who is perpetuating this. But I often think that these things are complicated in those ways. So I just want to offer a blessing for Mrs. Crouch and anybody who has someone they care about in the carceral system. You know, almost 2 million people are incarcerated in the United States at this moment. And that means that it is impacting 10 million people with all of the loved ones impacted. And I think on a soul level, at minimum, it is impacting every single one of us. So I'd like to bless Mrs. Crouch. What about you, Matt? Um, I'd like to bless Karkarov. And this is in the spirit of kind of comforting, not condoning. Like, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't remember, the, recall the full details of what Karkarov did. I don't doubt that he was guilty of doing some things. It's just this is a 
this is an awful thing. I think Dumbledore is right. I, uh, his sniff of disapproval with the Dementors is one I share, just the way these folks are treated. And Karkov's obvious fear and, and weakness, you know, again, not to endorse any of his behavior, but just to offer a blessing to those who suffer. Next week, we're going to be reading book four, chapter 31, the third task through the theme of spite. I look forward to thinking up and telling a spite story. One big thing, Matt, that we want to tell everyone before we say goodbye, which is that our summer camp is so soon and it's going to be so awesome. So everybody come and join us. There's scholarships available. There's no reason not to come. There's just no reason not to come. Find out more at NotSorryWorks.com. This has been a Not Sorry production and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our engineer is Malika Kumpankum. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull and we are distributed by ACAST. Thanks this week to Danny for her voicemail, to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Kyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones this week. We'd also like to thank the following folks for giving us reviews on Apple Podcasts. Malexandrin, Doklad, Zoe Barley, Elise Claire Strauss, Dobby is Free, Eowyn of Rohan, Claylin M, Steph Oris, Nikris, and Melanie Lan. I love all your beautiful names. We love your support, everyone. Thank you. I do think that this is one of the best pictures of an opening of a chapter because that does not look like a magical anything that he is staring into. It looks like he's just been given a big bowl of oatmeal and is like, I can't eat all that. <laughs>